I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell. And you are listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. This week on Pop It, we're hosted by the AC Hotel in Worcester and joined by our guest, Nikki Bell. She is the CEO and founder of Lyft, Living in Freedom Together. Lyft is a survivor-led organization working to end prostitution and empower individuals to exit and recover from the impacts of commercial sexual exploitation. Thank you so much for joining us, Nikki. Thank you for having me. We're very excited about this. It's like something that is really not only a woman's issue, but something that really affects a lot of women right. across the country. The nation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we actually were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, but where there's this idea of sex work is almost on a spectrum of like victimization and trafficking and exploitation, which is a lot of what you work with. And then, you know, this idea that it's like a trade that we like you can go into as a dominatrix or offering a girlfriend experience or that kind of thing. Um, and what is really more representative of what the the sex work world looks like and so do you differentiate in your like services at all for different people who are in different types of the sex trade how do you differentiate so like first and foremost I don't ever use the term sex work because um, I think what that does is like sanitize the violence that is prostitution and so I think when we're talking about um, prostitution we have this idea of like the wealthy white woman deferring entrance to Yale while she prostitutes to raise her tuition or, you know, the dominatrix answering phone text lines making $100,000 a year, a year, right? But that is not who is representative in the sex trade. So when we look at who makes up the sex trade, it's typically young women of color, um, people in poverty, people coming out of the foster care system, people that have experienced prior sexual violence, right? So it's like, you know, we act like this is like, you know, a career choice that people can get into, right? But you can't define choice by lack of choices. And so I think what we're talking about is people forced into prostitution, be it a trafficker, be it circumstance, be it drugs and alcohol, whatever that may be. But it's not this like conscientious choice of like, I'm going to enter prostitution and like, you know, make a million dollars and buy myself a house it it, that's just not how prostitution plays out but the media does tell you otherwise right you mentioned that globe article yesterday what was the portrayal there so you know he's calling for full decriminalization and i'd like i would really like to see the studies that he cited because you know he referenced um you know like safety within prostitution right so prostitution can't be made safe because it is violence right um I think literally how I define prostitution is like the, the, you know, pain to sexually assault someone, right? Unwanted sex is rape, right? These women don't want to be having sex with someone. I mean, that's pretty clear. If you have to pay someone to have sex with you, they clearly don't want to be doing it, right? Um, and so unwanted sex is rape. Throwing $40 or $100 or whatever the price that you put on this person's body is, I don't think negates that fact, right? Um, And so this Globe article really, like, you know, cited a study saying that, you know, in the legal brothels in in Las Vegas, there was like zero cases of HIV, but half of um, people working in prostitution illegally in New Jersey have HIV. Like, first of all, that's ridiculous. Half of people working in prostitution don't are positive for HIV. And then when you look at how it plays out in the brothel, like there's certain counties in Las Vegas where prostitution is legal, right? And so what happens is these women have to subject, be subjected to HIV testing and STI testing, right? Now they're paying for it, right, mind you. The women are. The women are paying for this testing, right? And then also, 
are the men that are coming into the brothel asked to submit to testing? No, they're not, right? And if this doesn't just show what, like, that prostitution is rooted in patriarchy, right? Uh, the women have to, like, force, are forced to test, right? And then if they're positive, what happens is if they're sick, right? They're, like, discarded like a broken lamp or a dented can, right? And another vulnerable woman steps in to take their place, right? Where do you think they're getting the STIs from? the men that are coming to pay for sex with them, right? But again, they're bringing the money, right? Which is who has the power in the situation. So it's okay that they're infecting other women. That doesn't matter because we'll just throw them aside and bring in another, you know, prostituted woman. And that's kind of the work that you do with Lyft is like those women who are then discarded, right? It's like, how do you, so how would you, you know, serve a woman who comes out of a situation like that? So we have different support services at Lyft. So we have a drop-in center, which is like in a high corridor of prostitution where women can come in. Um, and like we work with women in, in all levels of the sex trade. So whether they're actively in prostitution, whether they're exited, um, we do some prevention work as well. But, you know, they can come in and we just like offer support services. They can come in and get HIV testing and STI testing on no cost to them. We're starting, we partnered with another organization in Worcester. They're starting to provide medical care on site at the drop-in center. Um, we do a lot of court advocacy because women are like, like roped up in the criminal justice systems in many, many ways. Um, and so we provide like court advocacy and work in partnership with the district attorney's office. Um, and we're also in process of opening a, sub, a survivor, a substance use program for survivors of prostitution. So it's for women with co-occurring mental health and substance use disorders that have been commercially sexually exploited. So the work that you're doing is amazing and people are stopping to take notice. And um, I think you've filled uh, a void or a gap, in, particularly in Central Mass, and you recognized it through your own experiences. Can you talk about the origin of your organization? Sure. So I got out of the life, actually, like I literally just celebrated five years out of the life um, last week. And when I was exiting, um, one of the things that there, there was just no support services for what I had experienced in prostitution. And when we look at substance use disorder and, and other like related mental health issues, the majority of it stems from trauma, right? Um, but there, we don't look at that as like a driver in these things um, when it is. And so there were like really no support services. I felt like there was no safe place for me to talk about the experiences I had in prostitution. And so originally that's how Lyft began, was just a support group for people that were in prostitution. Um, and from there kind of, you know, <clears throat> just Snowballed. I got involved in the work with the Worcester Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation um, and just started providing support services. And from the support group led to the drop-in center. We're also now a funded program in the Women's Correctional Facility. Um, we started to, like, at one night a week for, like, three hours. Now we're open Monday through Friday, 8.30 to 5. We have five survivors on staff. Um, we have seven, eight people on staff now. Um, so we've really like grown considerably over the last few years. You spoke a little bit about when you were founded and it really just started as a, a support group. And I was reading a bit um, about how you had partnered with AIDS Project Worcester um, and had Narcan training as part of that. Can you speak a little bit to the, I think a lot of people don't know what Narcan is, that it is available. Yeah. Um, can you speak a little bit to the importance of even just people who are not, who don't think that they know 
people involved, what they can do? Sure. So we partner with the AIDS Project Worcester, and they're the ones that provide the HIV testing and STI testing on site for our women as well. Um, but they also do like Narcan training and distribution. So Narcan is um, a drug that's available that reduce, um, reverses overdoses. Um, so obviously our women are at like super high risk of overdose, you know, I'd say over 90% of the women that we work with have a substance use disorder. Um, and, you know, the importance of having knock-in, I think whether you know somebody that has substance, I mean, we're in the middle of an opiate crisis, right? Massachusetts has been hit so hard. And the reality is everybody should have Narcan. Whether you know somebody that has substance use disorder or not, I mean, you know, we have people overdosing in public restrooms, right? Everywhere. So, I mean, it's it's a drug that's so easy to use. It doesn't, it, you know, if somebody wasn't overdosing and you happen to use it because you mistook, you know, you thought they were overdosing, it's not going to hurt them, right? Um, and it literally saves people's lives. Um, it just clears the opiates out of their system um, and, you know, reverses overdoses. And it's, it's easy to get trained and it's easy to access. I know I've looked on AIDS, uh, AIDS Project Worcester myself to see they offer trainings. Yeah. You can drop you can drop in, I yeah. think, and get it. Um, and it's really, it's like a nasal spray, basically, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And you simple. can also go into any, every pharmacy in Massachusetts has a standing order for it. So you can go into any pharmacy and they'll give you um, a Narcan kit. It's covered by insurance. You pay whatever copay that is. Um, and the pharmacist can also show how to use it. So you can walk into any CVS, Walgreens, any pharmacy. I didn't know that. <laughs> can you just break down to the relationship between the opioid epidemic and sex trafficking, particularly in Central Mass? Sure. So, you know, there's this whole like chicken egg conversation, right? So like are people in prostitution because of their substance use disorder? Are they using substances to cope with what's happening to them in prostitution? And I think it's like a combination of all of those things, right? Um, and so, you know, what can happen is traffickers can either, like, they'll find women um, and, and they can use substances as a way, a means of control, right? Um, or it's also a vulnerability that they can exploit, right? So traffickers look for whatever vulnerability exists and will exploit that vulnerability. And a substance use disorder is definitely a vulnerability that can be exploited. Um, in central Massachusetts specifically, um, there's been quite a few recent cases. I was at a um, meeting with the U.S. Attorney's Office last week, and they were saying that almost all of their cases were substance use related. So people preying upon women with substance use disorder. Um, and so recently in Worcester, there was actually um, a conviction, a trafficking conviction um, of gang members. There were, you know, and there's still a couple more that are being prosecuted right now. And what they did was they preyed upon the vulnerability that is substance use disorder and essentially held women captive in a hotel. Um, and they would not be allowed to have their drugs until they, you know, made their quota essentially. And so, you know, it's it's something that people are preying upon, you know. And I want to say that traffickers do that, but so don't people that pay for sex, right? So I feel like when we have this whole conversation, we never talk about the John, right? We never talk about the person that is driving this whole industry, right? Um, a, a pimp isn't gonna sell a girl if nobody's coming to buy her. Um, and so they are what drives this whole industry. And you know, when we're talking about solutions to prostitution, that is the solution to prostitution, is targeting you know, men that are driving this whole industry, the, the sex buyer, and offering women a way out of the life. 
mentioned the role of hotels and all of this. Mm-hmm. I know you've been pivotal also in requiring training for people who work at hotels. Can you give us the overview of that and how that might work in a place like the AC that's hosting us today? Yeah. So actually, Robin Carr and Chantal Bethia um, from the Central Mass Freedom Coalition kind of like really were driving that um, push for um, hotels to be trained. And they modeled that policy off a Connecticut state policy where which mandates in order to get licensing through the state that hotels take a, a training on on trafficking, identifying and responding to that, having a process and a protocol in place for if they have suspicions that trafficking is taking place in their institutions. You know, we're seeing a lot of hotels being held liable, um, civilly liable for allowing trafficking activities to take place on their properties. So. As well, this is a way for the hotels to protect themselves from from civil litigation as well. And so what it would essentially, the staff will have to take a training and and there's different training for everybody in different departments because different people are going to see different things, right? The front desk are going to take note of different, you know, like somebody coming in and paying with a a, a gift card as opposed to, right, um, bringing in multiple girls without luggage, right? Um, You know, different, they'll notice different things than, say, the you know, housekeeping, which, you know, maybe asking for additional towels or seeing a ton of condoms in the trash or whatever, you know, so like everybody, the training is different for different um, departments. And so it has gone through city council and it was passed. Um, You know, it's funny because when you ask hotels if they have, they have training for that, they all say yes. But then when you like delve a little bit deeper into it, like, well, how long is that training? And it's like, oh, it's part of our general overall safety training. Okay, but how much is allotted to trafficking in there? Like 10 minutes, you know? So it's like, how much How can, how much can you really get into in 10 minutes, right? Um, and, you know, hotels, unfortunately, are a place where, where trafficking is happening, right? Um, you know, a lot of you know, prostitution has moved online, you know, we're in that digital age and, you know, people are selling girls and women and and vulnerable people online, just like they sell bikes. I mean, it's like, you know, you can go online just as easily as you're trying to order a pizza and order a young woman for sex. And so we mentioned the Johns and holding people accountable. One of the stories that has been on my radar lately is Robert Kraft, obviously in the orchids of Asia. And you've been quoted in a lot of pieces related to that as a content expert, but I was hoping you could walk us through what you think occurred during that situation and what the repercussions should be. Yeah. So, you know, it it seems pretty apparent that, you know, that was a trafficking situation. I mean, one thing Robert Kraft isn't is a dumb guy, right? So we didn't go into this place and see these women living there, right? And and not think, hey, maybe something, you know, they were sleeping on massage pl- tables, like cooking on hot plates outside. Like, you know what I mean? They were essentially like entrapped in this place, right? And whether or not um, they're trafficking victims, I think, you know, is not irrelevant, but essentially irrelevant, right? Um, People don't, you know, money doesn't equal consent, right? And so, you know, he's essentially going in and, like, paying to access women's bodies because he has money and privilege, right? And, you know, people, a lot of people are like, were you surprised? No, Robert Kraft is, like, the atypical sex buyer, right? Like, I'm just going to say this because I am and this is who I am. Like, he's friends with Donald Trump, so that tells me everything that I need to know about Robert Kraft, period, yes. right? Yeah, like, <laughs> period. That's yeah. it. That's all I need to know. So, no, I was not surprised. Um, 
And, you know, he is like, this is what drives this, right? White men of privilege, right, with disposable income, thinking that because they're, they're entitled to whatever they want because they have money, right? And so completely ignoring all the signs that these women didn't want to be there, didn't want to be participating, didn't speak English, didn't, you know, couldn't even communicate with them. He didn't care. He didn't care because it's not, they're not human beings to sex priors, right? The person that is sitting in front of them is completely ignored and it's about what they want. Um, you know, sex buyers will ignore black eyes and bruises and poking teeth and needle marks and all of these like outward signs that something is wrong because they don't care. And like that's, that's part of the problem, right? Is like they don't look at people in prostitution as human beings. And I think this has been an important story for visibility because when my perception comes from a place of ignorance and I think that people buying sex are criminals, right? Who you could recognize, but really they're all around us. Yeah. Um, you mentioned an atypical John, but I don't know, are, would people be surprised by who's really paying for sex? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's, you know, again, like typically white men with disposable income, right? So we're talking about judges and lawyers and doctors and teachers and, you know, the guy next door with the family, right? Who's like going out and paying to assault women and then going home like he's father of the year and taking care of his kids, right? Um, and, you know, people are always like really surprised when it comes out as to like who's paying for sex, right? And, but like that, that is you know, that is like the makeup of who's representative of who's paying for sex. It's like this like entitlement and privilege because they have money. From a criminal justice perspective, how are the Worcester police cracking down on this sort of behavior? So, for a long time they didn't um, even look at, you know, the demand side of things. You know, um, they are doing a lot of like street level operations but, you know, if we're going to address this, like, holistically, I think we need to address it everywhere that, that people are paying for sex. So looking at massage parlors, looking at hotels, looking online. But, you know, it, I mean, doing a couple street-level operations is, like, for me, not, not cutting it. Um, and I hope we get back to a place. But they have been a partner at the table and willing to listen. And hopefully we'll get to a place when, you know, we're, we're addressing this uh, comprehensively. Um, I will say that the Worcester DA's office has been such an incredible partner. Um, we're working, we're starting a diversion program. So it's called the um, KD program. It's creating alternatives to incarceration. And so women will no longer be criminalized for prostitution. They will essentially, you know, they will be arrested, but they will not be arraigned on the charges. Um, and they will be given the option of um, enrolling in the diversion program with Lyft um, as opposed to being criminalized. And so then we'll work with them to create an exit plan and help them get connected to uh, necessary relevant resources in our community. I only want to get as personal as you want to get, but um, <laughs> the last time that I met you, you talked a lot about how you got out of the sex trafficking trade. You're a survivor. What was it for you that helped you to escape? So I think, you know, I, I think ex exiting is like a, a personal complex um, process, right? And so I think people think that, you know, you're you're exiting prostitution and it's like you get out and, you know, it, it's a journey and it's a process and not an event, right? And so for me, it was really difficult, right? Um, I spent, you know, I, you know, I would say I was probably took me 
you know, I got in and then wanted out immediately and it took me like 10 years to get out because it's just like so um, difficult to recover from, you know, and I think I'll probably be recovering from it for the rest of my life. That's just the reality. The harms of the sex trade are real. Um, and so for me, it was like having another um, like survivor in my life that looked at me like I had value um, apart from my body um, and that empowered me to use my voice to get involved um, and to advocate for changes for women that were still in the life. So I think having a voice at the table, right, um, and using my experiences for something positive so that everything that happened to me didn't happen for no reason at all, right? Um, it happened so that I could understand and connect with the women behind me and, and drive change in our community. So I think for me that was really important. Um, trauma counseling, trauma therapy, trauma, ther trauma therapy. I uh, can't speak enough to, like, that was, like, really... Um, a big piece of my my journey and you know there are days that I still struggle and I still feel like I I don't have like you know self-worth and I'm not valuable and you know like all of those messages that were drilled into me for my whole life um and you know PTSD like I still struggle with that um I don't think that will ever go away but like I'm able to navigate that stuff today and they have a really great support system and I think having positive female mentors in my life both survivors and not survivors I mean I have like incredible friends in my life that you know have d helped me develop professionally and and personally and and learn to live um out of out of the sex trade well I can't tell you how inspirational that is that People who face adversity have something that that somebody who hasn't faced the same issue couldn't give back, you know, and it's amazing that you've taken your experience and turned it on its head and now you're helping all these women in a way that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise. I, yeah, I so admire the work that you're doing. And I think even just the name of the organization, right, Lift, mm -hmm. you're lifting women um, and fellow survivors out of that life. We, You talked a little bit about how um, we never really hear about the Johns. It's all about the women. And so there's a lot of portrayals of um, women in prostitution in media, right? Some are, like, meant to be, like, fun and light. Like, pretty women is, like, what everyone thinks of, right? And then there's, like, th there's ones that are darker um, where, like, they go into sort of, you know, the probably more realistic portrayal of what the world is like. So something like Clue with Jane Fonda. Um, and then there's there's sort of that weird middle ground where like secret diary call girl where they're like this is her real life but is it and then but they do I guess try to approach it with some nuance where she does have those feelings of like self what's my self-worth so are there any particular pieces of media that you have found either really really harmful or are there any that have been more not positive but realistic ac accurate is that you know helpful or harmful to the cause on a larger scale so I think, you know, the media does a good job of, um, again, sanitizing prostitution and making it seem like a glamorous industry, right? So when we're talking about, um, you know, um, what was it, the girlfriend experience, yeah. right? I, I mean, it's like, that is not the reality. Um, and I think what it does is it, <clears throat> you know, we're already, like, I think society is grooming women for prostitution in itself, you know, um, when we're looking at, you know, like the media coverage of it <clears throat> and making it seem like this is like a viable option to support yourself, right? But what they don't talk about is like when you're in prostitution and you have a gun held to your head for the first time or you're assaulted and beaten so badly, right? Um, and you, you feel like you don't have anybody to help you. What they don't talk about is the first time you get a sexually transmitted infection. What they don't talk about is all of those things 
things, right? But that is that is prostitution, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I think the media is incredibly harmful in representing prostitution in a glamorous way, right? Because we have young people that are like economic dis, uh, economically disadvantaged, right? People in poverty, um, and and they're thinking, wow, this is my way out, right? But the hard thing is, you know, once you enter, it's really difficult to get out, right? So, um, and you're not, it's not like you're earning money, right? So it's like, what ends up happening is for many people, like they get into the sex trade and then drugs and alcohol become a real problem, right? Because, you know, you know, it's like, imagine having to have sex with the person you love 30 times a day, right? It's like a you know, and then exchange that for 30 different people, right? And like what that feels like. And it's like, it's like you are forced to disassociate, right? Or find some way to like cope with that. Um, and it does real damage. And so drugs and alcohol become like a real driver. And then once that happens, then it becomes this, okay, now I'm prostituting to, to just to be able to get high, right? And it becomes this vicious cycle of like seeing a guy because you need money to get high and then needing drugs to forget about seeing that guy, right? So it's like this like vicious cycle that you can't get out of. Um, I, you know, it's it's difficult because again, it's like we're, we're portraying it as like a glamorous industry and like a way to get out, right? Prostitution is not a job like no other, right? I hear that all the time. Even in that Boston Globe article, the guy says, there are worse jobs. All right, tell me one. I would like to know what, and it's like very easy for a privileged male to say, oh, there are worse jobs. Well, like, what, like, well, you know, you don't have to experience it. So how would you know that? And who are you to speak on behalf of people that have experienced that, right? Um, I can't think of anything worse for, for me personally. And, you know, we've worked with over, it's like interesting because, you know, there's not, I think in academia too, they represent like prostitution as is very different. They use a lot of that like sex work language, and it's like, you know, I think people that actually want to publish studies realistically on prostitution are, are uh, blacklisted in in the academic world, um, and so they're like very promoting this, you know, pro legalization and and glamorization of the sex trade, and so. It's difficult because again, like we are, we're looking at who's funding all of this, like push for like decriminalization, and you're like tracing, you follow the money, right? It's like the pornography industry, like George Soros funds, and it's like you know they they have the funds to push out this this narrative, right? That people that are working like to end prostitution, all of our money goes into support services for people trying to exit, and so it's like you know we're trying to like put like vet a really strong research partner to kind of show some of the research that we've done. I mean, we've worked with over 160 women. And one of the questions on our intake form is, do you wish to exit prostitution? Did you know not one person has answered no? Wow. Yeah. And so like, that's, that's problematic for me. If it's a job like no other, and it's such a great career choice, why does everybody want out so bad? Right. Yeah. And then we ask them like, what are, why, like, you know, what, what, what are some of the things preventing you from doing that? Right. And it's like, I can't get a job. I'm homeless. I have a substance use disorder. Right. Like all of these things like prevent people from exiting. So it's not, it's like people are, are trapped in it because they don't, they feel like they don't have any other options. And so that's like a big part of what we want to do at Lyft is like create those options for people. And so even 
like through hiring survivors like to work with us right like get you know how you help people like stay out of the life give them viable employment right um and so you know like with us like we have survivors on staff we're about to open the substance use program that will be staffed with survivors as well and it's like bringing people through giving them employment opportunities professional development training right um in order to to help them stay out of prostitution you you mentioned some of what your mission is at Lyft, and I know um, you have what's called it's the equality model, and you list some of the basically just aspects of your mission. Yeah, and it's very um, it's in line with the Nordic model, which is you know Sweden, yeah, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, that whole area. Um, can you just speak a little bit about what that entails and sort of what each part of that means? So the equality model is the Nordic yeah. model. Um, it's just so many countries have now, like it, you know, it was called the Nordic model because it began in Norway, but now it's Norway, France, um, Northern Ireland, Canada, you know. Um, so there's that's why it's now called the equality model. But essentially, it you know it entails like a, a public health campaign and awareness campaign, helping people to understand um, the harms of prostitution, right? And so I think, you know, there's been some like great research done by like Nova Foundation and the um, where it's like what's seen and unseen, right? And when we're talking about prostitution, like people, you know, see the prostituted person in front of them, but don't recognize all of the vulnerabilities that led them there, right? So it's helping people to understand that prostitution is gender-based violence, right? And so, through, through, you know, implementing the Nordic model, um, now, if you, like, survey men in Sweden, they, they believe that buying sex is gender-based violence, which is an incredible way to look at it, because men in our country do not believe that, right? Um, and so what it also does is it decriminalizes for the prostituted person. So, essentially, I couldn't be arrested for my own exploitation, and it provides government-funded, high-quality exit services, right? So helping people get connected to medical care and education and employment and housing, right? Um, And it also places higher fines and penalties on sex buyers and traffickers, right? And so they've seen great success with this model. They've seen, like, drastic reductions in prostitution activity, um, reduction in, in violence against women, reduction in trafficking. And it's funny because... You know, a lot of like the pro-sex work, you know, people like their their major leg that they stand on is women shouldn't be criminalized. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Right. Um, But I do not believe that these guys should get a pass for the violence that they're enacting on people. I don't. Um, And, you know, earlier you had said, you know, it affects many women. I just want to say that if any woman is for sale, we all have a price tag on us. Right. And so. You know, if, if we can look at a woman and sum up what her dollar value is, they're, they're doing that to all of us, right? And so, like, I think it's really important for people to stand together, like, on this issue, right? And I am not suggesting that people aren't able to, like, make decisions for themselves. But, you know, it's when people don't have any choices that I think it's problematic, right? And so we're, I was on Twitter, like, last week, and... You know, there was this whole discussion around, like, teen homelessness, you know, and and essentially, you know, somebody was talking about ending demand and targeting demand, and they're like, you're going after the solution to help the teen homelessness. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. If you're saying that teenagers should have to exchange, like, no, I I tend to believe that housing would be the solution to teen homelessness, right? right? As opposed to having teenagers exchange sex for have a roof over their head. Like, it's like really not that complicated, Um, but it gets like diluted, right? And so it's like, they're looking at it like, well, these guys are doing these, these teenagers 
teenagers a favor. No, doing the teenagers a favor would be allowing them to stay at your house without making them exchange sex with you, right? That would be helpful, right? But that's not what's happening, right? They're, again, preying on the vulnerability that, like, these these youth are homeless, right? And so I think it's just, you know, we we separate it as, you know, in, in this conversation about trafficking, I really try to stay away from the trafficking language, Um because it becomes problematic, right? Um, people want to end trafficking, but legalize prostitution. Um, and it's like, sends this message that, you know, people that are forced through a pimp are worthy of support and, and assistance, but people that are forced because they're poor or, you know, they have substance use disorder or whatever, they're something else, right? And it, it it's just, it's a problem, right? And when we're looking at like entries into prostitution, trafficking is one entry point. It's just one entry point. Um, and so in order to, if you want to address trafficking, you have to address prostitution. Um, when we see legalization of prostitution, what happens is, is trafficking increases. Pimps are coming in and setting up brothels, right? It's like, you know, it doesn't decrease, right? It actually increases. Violence against women increases. Um, and I also think that we have this conversation about legalization and, well, if if women weren't criminalized for prostitution, then they would report the violence against them that they're experienced by sex buyers. So it's interesting because like less than 20% of sexual assaults are reported. So why are we suddenly thinking that, like there are many other factors that lead people to not report sexual violence, right? right. Um, so like whatever you wanna call it, legalization, decriminalization is not gonna change those factors, right? With that rape culture exists, that people get blamed for their the violence that they experience, right? So that's not gonna change that. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of like mixed messaging out there um, around the sex industry. So as allies and women who feel like we have a voice in the city of Worcester, what can we do? I think advocate for law enforcement to continue to target demand like comprehensively. Doing hotels and stings, looking at massage parlors, looking everywhere, right? And also like continuing to push the city to offer support services for people, right? Um, you know, we're opening the substance use program. We were funded um, through the Department of Public Health and the Bureau of Substance Abuse. And I will say, like, Senator Chandler was, like, such a champion for that. We she was really her. incredible. Yeah, such a champion. <laughs> I mean, she was, you know, Senator Chandler, Congresswoman McGovern, Dr. Castile, um, and Sarai Rivera, too, has been, like, driving a lot of that, you know, demand stuff in our city. And they've been so, like, incredibly helpful. Um, but, again, we're 15 beds. We're 15 beds, and we've worked with alone over 160 women, right? So, and we're going to be open to take people from across our state, and we've only, and that's just our community that we've done that, right? So, um, I think you know, advocating for you know, exit services for people. I think small business owners, like reaching out and offering employment to, to survivors that are exiting the life, right? Um, I, I think donating money is always super helpful. Yeah. Like all of the work that we do, like depends on dollars, unfortunately, Absolutely. you know? Um, and, and so all of those things, you know, are helpful. We're also having an event on June 8th um, to help us um, get the renovations done for Jonas Place. Um, and we're celebrating community partners and heroes that have helped us um, do this work. Where's the event? So it's at United Methodist Church. Um, you can go on our website. Um, it's 6 to 10, and tickets are available on our Facebook page on Eventbrite. Um, so. cool. We'll time the release of this yeah. episode so that it's just a week before. Awesome. That'll be great. Yeah, and we'll make sure to mention that.
Um, I had one more question. Kamala Harris is running for president. She recently was the first candidate to come out um, for decriminalization decriminalization of of prostitution, which uh, is a bit nuanced. It runs a little contrary to her history as um, California's attorney general and as a DA, but it is still a step. Um, Do you have any thoughts on her use of that as one of her points right now and just the that the presidential race at large do you think it will come out as an issue as someone's already brought it up so i don't think it's a step i think it's a step in the wrong direction i think decriminalizing the sex trade is so incredible it's such the wrong way to go here um and you know essentially when you're saying decriminalizing the sex trade you're decriminalizing pimping Right. So like you're legalizing the selling of human beings. Right. So when we're talking about decriminalization, I think that's an important point to make. Right. Because it always gets put to, oh, well, it will no longer be illegal for women in the sex trade. You're decriminalizing pimping. Right. So do you know what that is going to do to so many vulnerable young women? Right. Um, And so I think just I think that's important to state, you know, and then Kamala Harris, you know, she was actually like really like a a leader in California um, to hold Johns and buyers um, traffickers accountable, to hold buyers and traffickers accountable. Um, And so she made that statement and then she actually kind of walked it back like, no, I I didn't mean decriminalize the whole sex trade. I meant decriminalize for prostituted people. Right. And so, you know, I don't really know where she stands on it, um, which is like problematic. Um, And so it's a little frustrating. And, you know, no, I don't I don't know if it will become like an important issue in this in the presidential candidate. I mean, we have so many things going on in our country right now, um, like with the immigration stuff, you know, just there's a lot of other issues that are like are leading it. But again, what happens is like we're listening to the voice of the privileged few over over the many that represent prostitution. And it's problematic. Right. Um, You know, it's not like people are, you know, coming into fourth grade career day and presenting on like all that is prostitution and you have like 10 fourth grade girls that's like that's what I want to be when I grow up right that's not how it takes place right it's not a job right um but that's again it's how it's represented and so I don't know that it will become an important issue um, because people, the people that are represented in the sex trade are poor people, people of color, um, people that people don't care about, unfortunately. Um, so I don't think it will become that important yeah. of an issue. And I think even among the Democratic candidates, that's, like you said, the people who are forgotten about or not paid attention to, that's a broader issue where there's some who are still just like, you know, we are everything's fine lucky in central massachusetts like you said to have lawmakers who have the issues of sexual assault and prostitution on their radar and i went to a public hearing a few weeks back at the state house and uh, a umass professor got up with his daughter and she spoke about her sexual assault on campus and then he said you know i've had thousands and thousands of students come through umass and it had to happen to my daughter to realize that a huge percentage of these women have been sexually assaulted. And he said, this is a public health emergency. You know, if 80% of our campus came down with um, the measles or something, well, then we would all be up in arms and we'd be treating it like a public health emergency. But because it's something so taboo with so much stigma attached to it, nobody's paying attention. 
but the lawmakers are working really hard to make climate surveys a part of the college experience, and they feel like that will help to not only educate potential, I'm learning all this language and verbiage too, (laughs) but when we talk about sexual assault, you call them the responding party, the person who's been accused of sexual assault. Um, the perpetrator. The Let's perpetrator. call them what they are. And that's been a hard thing for me, too, is the legalese of this, where you've got institutions protecting their PR oh, yeah. interests, also advocating for survivors. And those two things, to me, are morally opposed. Yeah, and I don't think that they actually do advocate for survivors, right? I think there's a couple of colleges in our area that actually have... Um, you know, advocates on campus at Pathways through Pathways for Change, right? But the reality is most don't, right? And at the end of the day, like, if your, like, appropriate response to a sexual assault is to, like, change their schedule, so, like, like that's, that's problematic, right? Like, you know, and I think handling it internally, right, like, any other sexual assault would go to the police, right? We're not, we're not going to the police because that's, that's a bad, that represents the college in a negative way, right? Well, you have a perpetrator on your campus and and most likely they're going to they're going to perpetrate again right but rather than protecting you know potential women that you know are, are going to be assaulted by this guy you're protecting your college's reputation and it's, and, a, it's a problem and the guy mm-hmm. oh yeah sergeant Brissett from the wpd i interviewed her for this story about sexual assault on college campuses And I said, you know, is the Me Too movement changing the perception so that survivors will be more willing to go to to press criminal charges? And she said, absolutely not. For every survivor who is willing to tell their story, there's someone else who's doubting them. But I don't think that the numbers have changed. I don't think that the perception has changed. How do you feel about the Me Too movement? So I think prostitution has been left out of the Me Too movement, right? Again, they're this other class of women that somehow signed up for the violence that they're experiencing. Um, you know, I like am all for like people being empowered and you know like owning that. And like I think it is important as women to stand up and, and say like that the majority of us have experienced you know a form of sexual violence, um, whether it harassment or or straight violence. Right, that's the reality. Most women will experience or girls will experience sexual violence prior to turning 18 years old like that's problematic right um and i think it's important but again i don't think it's changing as quickly as it needs to right um and again you know part of the problem with reporting it you know and i i have a lot of respect for you know um sergeant brissett i work with her a lot but like when people are reporting, well, what are we wearing? You know, like just the response, right, is often like the onus is put on the survivor, right? So you're right, people don't report. And then when we look at how, it, how it's handled in the criminal justice system, I mean, we had a woman that was assaulted at gunpoint by a sex buyer, right? Um, and the police actually, you know, got the guy right away, um, still in possession of the loaded weapon, all of that, right? He is arrested, goes over to court, and the judge gives some releases him to his parents' custody. It's like, he had an illegal gun, he sexually assaulted somebody with that gun, and he's home awaiting trial? Was this a matter of his affluence or connections or? You know, I, I don't, I, you know, and, and the woman, when she found out that he was out, you know, was like petrified, right? Of course. And she said to me, it's because of, uh, I'm a prostitute, you know, I'm in prostitution. And she's right. 
I, you know, I wasn't going to lie to her. I said, you're, you're probably right. <laughs> it has a lot to do with it. Like, she's not a worthy victim, right? And so, but like, that's like, you know what I mean? Like, and then we have women that are sitting in jail awaiting trial on a prostitution charge. And a guy that sexually assaults prostitute women at gunpoint is home awaiting trial. It's like incredible. Like yeah. the, the inequality within the, the criminal justice system. I've written a lot about the gradation of needs for victims or survivors, but I had not thought about the gradation of survivors and the amount of respect that they might receive. Yeah. Oh yeah, and that's why like many women in prostitution don't report, right? Because it's like, well, what did you expect? Yeah. What did you expect is kind of like the response that you get often, you know? But I will say, you know, when I, I do have a great appreciation for like Donna, Brissett, and Diane, and like we've like worked really hard to kind of like develop a relationship so like women do feel safe reporting. Um, and they've started to like attend the drop-in and like build relationships with women and like now like the women know if something happens to them we will call them and they will come over and talk you know what I mean so I think that's like a really important step um in this work they've done the same thing with community policing with youth violence it's a similar approach just having a positive presence in the neighborhood kids are going to be more responsive yep yep I think it's building that trust I think a lot of like we're lucky in Worcester like you said between lawmakers, but also to have people like Sergeant Brissett, um, and I think a lot of throughout the state, probably throughout the country, they they don't, they're not so lucky to have relationships with those people. And it really is like it's not that survivors and organizations like yours aren't. It's not for lack of effort on your part. I think a lot of policing doesn't make the effort because it seems like it's a real partnership, right, for you guys. And I think a lot of policing doesn't approach it that way, and so. It is, people don't want to go to the police, period. Yep. Thank you for creating a network for women um, and all people in the city. And we will continue to discuss this issue. I think it's a really important one. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Thank Thank you for coming. Yes. I have been Sarah. I've been Molly. And this was Poppin'. The AC Lounge at the AC Hotel in downtown Worcester is the newest place to be. During May, the trendy AC Lounge is featuring fun and exciting ways to officially usher in spring, showcasing custom signature drinks to celebrate college graduations, build your own bruschetta bar, yum, and a fun pop-up artist event and a meet-the-chef culinary evening on National Hamburger Day. Check out the AC Hotels by Marriott Worcester Facebook or visit them on 125 Front Street behind City Hall. Mass Foodies curates exclusive events and publishes thought-provoking content for the food-centric person. When asking yourself where to eat tonight, turn to MassFoodies.com to see what's happening in the Massachusetts food scene. That's MassFoodies.com.